Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. Good morning to you. Thanks to Brett for another great Bongo Gum. He'll be back tomorrow morning, 6 to 9 a.m. And in the studio with me, my co-host, Steve McDonald, here on Future Sense. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Nick. Lovely to be here again. I must say your light body is just radiant today. You're (laughs) emanating something which I would say probably small children and animals uh, respond to, I'm guessing. Funny you should mention that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm referring to something you told me off here. Uh, Yes, I, I just came back from a conference down in Coffs Harbour and uh, walked into the dining room one morning at the resort for breakfast and there were two young twins, must have been about 18 months old or something, who just couldn't stop staring. It was, it was quite funny. <laughs> for some something about that guy's aura, I don't know what it is. I've just arrived at the planet here and I'm, all I'm seeing is a bunch of dull grey people everywhere and suddenly a couple of rainbow looking beings walk into the dining room. Oh my goodness. <laughs> It's very nice to be recognised, at least by somebody, isn't That's it? Right, for some reason. <laughs> so you're with Future Sense this morning through till 11 o'clock. We're going to be talking a little bit about the conference uh, that Steve has just come back from, the Illuminate conference just down in um, Coffs Harbour. And uh, from that also the launch that uh, you and actually now myself are going to go down to the Mind Medicine Australia launch uh, in early February. Yes, looking forward to that. Absolutely. And with that, we're going to talk about the first trial that has been approved at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne for the use of uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, if you will. Big news. Big news. Big news yeah. for the treatment of depression and a little bit of a side story regarding cannabis. We're going to look at the democracy index around the world. It's a bit surprising. Radio signals from 1.5 billion light years away. Genes and complexity. Uh, is there a relationship? And uh, a few other things that might come our way this morning here on Bay FM. Thanks for joining us. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate and spiral up. You're tuned to Bay FM and you are with Future Sense here with myself, Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald here in the studio through till 11 o'clock this morning. As we said earlier, as I mentioned, um, out of the blue almost, it seems that Steve will be able to expand on that a little bit, uh, a report just the other day that uh, psilocybin, the psychoactive compound from magic mushrooms, is being used to treat depression and anxiety in terminally ill patients in a new trial at Melbourne's St Vincent's Hospital, which is pretty amazing, headed by clinical psychologist Dr Margaret Ross, will begin in April with 30 uh, 30 patients recruited from the hospital's palliative care who have not responded to antidepressant or anti-anxiety symptoms. Pretty amazing um, development this is. Yeah, wonderful news, Nick. And uh, it's been in the pipeline for quite a while that we haven't uh, made an announcement until just recently. Mm. And uh, the big breakthrough for us uh, came really in late 2017. And uh, as some of our listeners would know, I'm co-founder of an organisation called Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, which was created here in Australia back in 2011 as a non-profit organisation to uh, get some psychedelic research Mm. happening here in Australia. And we've been knocking on doors for a long time and it wasn't until late 2017 that we were approached by 
some people from St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, from yeah. the palliative care unit, who expressed an interest in the research which has been happening in the USA around psilocybin to treat near-death anxiety and terminally ill patients. Yes, because we're fairly well behind the United States and some places in Europe on this kind of research. And your your activism with this, with PRISM, has largely been, as I understand, with MDMA for PTSD, but also with these other psychoactive substances. That's right. And that was uh, really due to Rick Doblin's visit to Australia in 2010, where he put forward some money to try and get uh, some research happening here in Australia. And it was really that was the Although we were interested in getting research happening, Rick's uh, offer of some money was really the catalyst mm. for PRISM to be created. And so we were focused on MDMA and still are, and uh, we have made some progress towards getting an MDMA uh, assisted trial, psychotherapy right. trial here in Australia and uh, we're hoping to progress that further this year mm. too. As we've mentioned before and you're probably aware on this show too in the US uh, MDMA for PTSD is now at the third stage which is the final stage with the FDA before its approval to go on the schedule with proper with appropriate um, care and, um, and uh, applications. That's right and, and it was declared a breakthrough mm. medicine uh, or breakthrough therapy by the FDA which is the American equivalent of our TGA which is wonderful. And what that means is that during the phase three trials, MAPS can actually start offering treatment to the general public. And so this year, mm -hmm. they are planning to uh, start, or starting to license clinics around the USA that uh, people can go through, go to and pay for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely amazing. Well, this trial is about psilocybin and is about uh, end-of-life terminal patients. Uh, the rate of depression among uh, terminally ill patients is high, with up to 77% of patients thought to suffer from the condition. It's also been found that the more symptoms that a patient is experiencing of a disease, the higher the likelihood that the patient will experience depression. I imagine that's certainly true. Anxiety is also common, with up to 48% of terminally ill cancer, cancer patients reporting major anxiety symptoms and approximately 14% classified as having an anxiety disorder. So there's, the opportunity here is huge. And of course, the, the research that's been already conducted on psilocybin in the United States in this kind of trial is, is very, well, more than just very promising. It's quite extraordinary in some ways. It is fantastic, mm. yeah. And a friend of mine from Texas uh, actually produced a movie called A New Understanding, a documentary film about the research in the USA, which I'd recommend people take a look at if they're interested. Okay. Yeah, it's a wonderful good. story. Mm. Uh, it's interesting how it actually works, of course. Maybe we can we can look at this. And uh, I guess I don't actually know how it works yet. I mean, that's part of doing a trial, isn't it? Well, the, I guess they found a direct relationship between the strength of the spiritual experience that people have when they're given psilocybin and the uh, the outcomes. And, and the stronger the spiritual experience, the mm -hmm. better the outcomes are. So that's, that's pretty uh, direct, I guess. And at the end of the day, you know, this is about giving people access to other dimensions of consciousness so they can understand that death is, is not an end but simply a transition to another dimension of existence. And on that note, just remember, I sent you a thing that was discovered by my dear friend Julia the other day from a chap called Bush, Mr. Bush, who looks a bit like a Bush. Did you notice that? I, I Actually, I'm not sure if I had a chance to look at the link, but oh, keep okay. talking. <laughs> <laughs> the guy talking about death is not an end point, uh, ah. that, that uh, video, that YouTube oh, video. Oh, the one, the, the doctor. Yeah, the doctor. Yeah, no, I did look at that, Dr. of course. Dr. Bush. Yes. Uh, it's no, fantastic. I, yeah, I, I actually just looked at that this morning. I didn't realise his name was Bush. Yeah, there you yeah. Go. I kept on looking at him and thinking that this guy almost looks like he's related to the Bushes, but of course yeah, right. Bush is a pretty common name. I guess so. Um, let's go, go back. We we'll might come back to that particular video because it's relevant to, in terms of uh, how we see death, yes. how we approach death. And you just mentioned 
that uh, that notion, of course, at end of life when you have a terminal, a terminal uh, cancer, a terminal disease, then of course you are facing that uh, that transition point yeah. pretty radically. In terms of also psilocybin, though, what it does do in these doses is decrease blood flow to the amygdala, uh, according to this article, which is the emotional processing center of the brain responsible for fear reactions. So that that's suppressed under the influence of psilocybin in these sort of tests that have so far been uh, studied. And also psilocybin decreases activity in the uh, default mode network. Can you explain a bit about the default mode network? Sure, um, not in too much detail because I'm not a doctor. But what I can say is that the default mode. You're not a doctor. Is, uh, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not a scientist. Uh, contrary to, to many of our listeners' belief, I'm, I'm sure. Mm. But um, yeah, the default mode network is uh, a a number of brain regions that regularly talk to each other in a, in a specific kind of a pattern during our normal waking consciousness. And what the research into psychoactives, psychedelics, is showing us is that these substances actually quieten the brain down. So. Um, it's interesting because we are when when we take these substances and go into altered states of consciousness, we get flooded with a whole bunch of information. Our mm-hmm. sensory awareness increases, and we can sense things that we don't normally sense. And yeah. the original sort of theory was that they were activating things in our brain, but in fact, with the benefit of uh, magnetic resonance imaging studies, we now know that they actually quieten the brain down. So yeah. it seems like many of the uh, things in our brain are actually filters, active filters, which narrow down the amount of sensory input that we have. And when our brain is quietened, we are opened up. Mm. Which is exactly what I always remember this. Uh, Aldous Huxley, in his famous book, right. The Doors of Perception, talked yeah. exactly about this in the 60s, I think, yeah. when that book was written, about uh, the brain being like a funnel. Yes. And all the information is coming in, but we manage through these these now more understood um, brain um, uh, regions and how they're articulated, how they work together, that they limit that amount of information to a, a receivable and, a, and a, a manageable amount of information in normal human consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, this research is also interesting in helping us understand uh, certain medical conditions and also people who just are, are more psychically open, for example, you know, that yeah. it, it's potentially because of this filtering role uh, that the brain has and the fact that perhaps their brains are a little bit quieter than others and so they have more information coming in mm. could also uh, lead us to to understand things like schizophrenia better where people mm. are hearing voices all the time and that kind of thing. Mm, yes. According to this article, the defi- default mode network is a network of brain structures associated with recalling memories, daydreaming, and thinking about the future. It's also associated with understanding of oneself in reference to memories, as well as the theory of mind, understanding others' motivations and actions. So you can imagine if this this network is, is quietened down, there's much more access to just the present moment of just being with whatever actually is here right yeah. now, inside and outside oneself. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting as we're moving into this new paradigm mm. and uh, moving on from the modern scientific industrial way of thinking and being to this emergent network-centric humanistic focused uh, level of consciousness that our awareness of networks is growing and you know, we're moving to a, a way of being human that's very network centric yeah. and consequently we're, we're discovering networks, networks in the brain, networks in our genes mm. which we'll talk about later in the show mm. it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, yes, that uh, that notion of networks, which is uh, it's complex, a system of systems. When we when you look at the meaning of network as not just a system, but a system of systems, is is uh, is I guess what you're talking about, isn't it? That larger conceptual. Generally, to, to be to be uh, really precise, precise mm. uh, in this sixth layer of consciousness that's described in Claire Graves' work, 
it's a network centric viewpoint which is looking at systems so this is where we dive into systems theory and we look at how the different parts of a system are connected and interact with each other and it's really only when we move to the seventh layer of mm. consciousness which is into the second tier the big big leap mm. momentous leap as claire graves called it yeah. that we start to look at systems of of systems, systems, of so, systems. so different mm. systems connected together, which is which is a more multi-dimensional viewpoint. Mm. So yeah. so layer six, we're mainly just looking at systems theory. Uh, in in that, we're looking at a single system and all the different mm. pieces of the system, how they're connected together. Sort of the difference between two-dimensional and three-dimensional chess, something you, like you could that. Say. Yes. Just just before we finish on this particular topic, and it's very it's really wonderful that uh, this trial starting in April at St Vincent's Hospital in Psilocybin is happening. It's fantastic news. What does it show? Just riffing a bit philosophically at this time, since you mentioned Graves' work there, what does it show about uh, where we are right now? With this kind of research is now becoming after the '60s when everything was closed down with yeah. regards to psychoactive substances, like the psychedelic revolution. We're in a, arguably a new psychedelic revolution. What is this saying about where we're at as a species right now? What is it? Uh, offering us all these changes in our consciousness come in waves and if you look back over uh, the last couple of hundred years we can see that there have been waves of this new way of thinking that have come through particularly in the 60s as you mentioned where there was a sudden focus on uh, social justice human rights um, emotional awareness the use of psychoactive substances and those sorts of things yeah. but at the time uh, there wasn't enough structure in society or connections between these diverse groups of people who are just kind of popping into the future to to maintain the momentum and so it was quite easily squashed down by the dominant paradigm which was the scientific industrial way of yeah. thinking uh, but now at this time in history we have the internet which they didn't have before and this is like a scaffolding mm. uh, that we can hang on to and, and connect with other like-minded groups around the world so all those little bubbles that have slowly been popping up around the world can now see each other and talk to each other thanks to our communications technology and uh, it's also it's an indicator that we're moving beyond the materialist mindset which we had in the scientific industrial era so the, that focus on conventional science uh, really had a an effect on our spirituality in that you know you couldn't mention you couldn't sorry measure uh, these strange subtle things that we have you know awarenesses that we have around spirituality on a dial in a lab and so they didn't exist therefore but uh, that as we're moving beyond that scientific mindset we're opening up to more spiritual things again and this is a common theme if you look at the mm the consecutive layers of consciousness as we go up this spiral of evolution when we're in the collectively oriented mm. systems yes um, there is a much greater likelihood that we will be exploring spirituality and, and pioneering new forms of spirituality yeah. whereas the the individually oriented systems on the other side of the spiral tend to be more focused on changing the outside world yes. whereas the, the communal oriented systems are focused on changing our internal mm. world yeah and the time is certainly ripe for us to be looking at our internal world, many of us on this planet right now, uh, as the external world is not really providing us with perhaps what we expected it to provide. No, the, that's the freedoms right. and a lot of uh, evolutionary tension building. And I must mention tension. the yes. SBS report on this uh, psilocybin trial yes. in Melbourne. There was one line in there which I must correct on air where they said one dose can last for six months or oh, yeah. more, this, <laughs> which this. kind of implies that you'd be tripping for six months on uh, mushrooms, folks, but that's not the case. What they're implying there is that the, the impact can last for six months yes. or more. 
You are tuned to Future Sense here with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. You should know the text line, or perhaps if you're listening for the first time, 04 3734 text in and it comes up here on the screen for us to respond to. If you've got any questions or any comments you'd like to make, please do. You can also, while I'm thinking about that, check us out on Twitter at Future Sense Show. And we have a website, futuresense.it, that you can also check out now. For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking Future Sense here on Bay FM. You're tuned to Bay FM 999 here on Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. And uh, we've been talking a little bit uh, before the break there about uh, the new research at St. Vincent's Hospital on psilocybin. And, of course, uh, these kind of substances are in the news a lot, uh, both from all directions. And we'll come to a bit of a piece on cannabis in a minute. But we thought we'd just uh, catch up a little bit on the uh, the pill testing debate as it's uh, moving forward. Australia's peak body for physicians just a couple of days ago have called on Premier in New South Wales Gladys Berejiklian to introduce pill testing trials at New South Wales festivals, telling her that there is sufficient evidence to support the intervention. That's the Royal Australian College of Physicians have written to her and to, to her state and territory counterparts can, imploring her to reconsider her hardline stance against pill testing. That's from the Sydney Morning Herald the other day. Yeah, that's wonderful news. It really is. And uh, it's highlighting the fact that sometimes our politicians speak from a place of ideology rather than science and interestingly sometimes sometimes that's very generous of you Stephen sometimes I mean I think you know we're, we're all used to being careful about trusting what politicians say because yeah. we know that often they'll say whatever they need mm-hmm. to say in order to try and get more votes which is a shame but that's a, a reflection of uh, our political system and how it's been designed and who it's attracting in particular at this time in history yeah. uh, so this is a, a very refreshing thing um when uh, I think uh, following one of the previous deaths at a New South Wales music festival, uh, the Premier of New South Wales called a, uh, together a few experts in inverted commas that she had chosen to just to look at the issue and she instructed them very specifically not to consider the possibility of pill testing and then she subsequently uh, mentioned many, many times in the media that there was, in her opinion, no evidence provided to the government that pill testing actually reduces harm. And of course, there's a, a plethora of evidence from overseas experience that pill testing actually does reduce harm and saves lives. Mm. So it's a very um, ideological standpoint that she's been speaking from and uh, one that simply based on a, a rigid, uh, irrational belief that she's picked up from somewhere, quite possibly from uh, religious influence, I, I would uh, speculate. Um, and uh, she's blinded herself to the evidence simply by choosing not to look at it and instructing even her experts not to look at the evidence. Yes. I mean, um, right there you've got a, a completely undemocratic and unrealistic and unscientific approach to this issue just as in a cabinet meeting or in a high-level meeting of, of the supposed experts that the Premier instructs them to do so. That's yeah, uh, and, and, you not know, good this enough. Is, um, it's it's certainly unscientific and it's a values issue of course and we can relate it back to the layers of consciousness and this kind of thinking is typically found at layer four which is the authoritarian agricultural uh, era values which are still very prominent in modern society in many many different countries including here in australia Mm. and typically at that level of consciousness we latch on to what we see as a truth which is 
always provided by some higher authority, and often that higher authority is a religious uh, or, yeah. a, or a God figure, yeah. but not always. Uh, sometimes people latch onto the law or you know the, the military or the police or something like that as some higher authority. And, and, uh, or indeed Donald Trump rules. or other leaders in this country, surprisingly, but yes, it's true, folks. You've probably noticed that among some people that you know. But, but uh, it's, I mean, it's a, it's, it's certainly very relevant at this time in history that we start taking notice of the values uh, of our leaders and just assessing where those values come from and whether those values are valid contemporary values or whether they're leftovers from an ancient era, which in fact layer four is very much a leftover set of values from an ancient era. Mm. Uh, so you know, sometime in the future, uh, I, I uh, idealise we'll, we will select our leaders on the basis of the sophistication of their values and their consciousness, but we haven't quite got there yet. Mm. But it's wonderful to see this letter come out. Uh, all uh, credit to the um, Royal Australian College of Physicians for, yeah. for putting that in on paper. And uh, I think it has actually triggered some action around the country. I, I saw uh, in a tweet that uh, Ross Hill sent us this morning that Fiona Patton MP uh, from the Victorian Parliament yes. uh, said that the crossbench there is banding together to uh, push for a pill testing trial in Victoria now, which is wonderful. Mm, very good. There's a story from um, barely a week ago in the ABC, which also you might want to check out six claims about pill testing, whether they're true or not, and sort of debunk some of the claims that um, Premier Berejiklian and others have made, uh, claim one being that pill testing leads to more drug use. There's no evidence of that. Claim two, a quarter of people under 30 are using drugs. Well, this is actually true in terms of uh, statistics. The 2016 National Drug Strategy Household Survey found that 28% of people aged 20 to 29 had used illicit drugs in the last year, compared to 16% of the general population. And cannabis was the most commonly used drug, followed by ecstasy, cocaine and methamphetamine. So right there, you've got 28% of young people using uh, these substances in one form or the other. So clearly, it's not just a few random people here. There, there's a lot of people who are in the firing line. I hesitate to use that sort of uh, phrase, but there I did. Uh, in terms of going to festivals or going to other situations and, uh, and purchasing um, dubious and dubious drugs and why not therefore test them so claim three is that pill testing creates a false sense of security this is also debunked too because people are advised if there's something in them that uh, quality is not up to standard they're advised and they're told and this they're warned uh, number four is pill testing can't detect new synthetic drugs that's not entirely true it can detect anything that is uh, shouldn't shouldn't be there and uh, that thus is red flagged unknown substances it can can predict if not to identify unknown substances, and so these substances are in red flagged, or this uh, the, the, whatever is in that particular um, sample is red flagged. Claim five, five is that pill testing doesn't conf confirm drug purity, same sort of thing. And the last claim is that there's no evidence that pill testing saves lives. And in this article, all of these are debunked to one degree or other. There's sufficient evidence out there in the world to show that uh, pill testing is definitely an advantage, helps to save lives. It may not save lives, but it certainly helps to do so. One of the things that's been missing from the public debate too, which I'd, I'd really like to mention, mm. is um, the fact that people enjoy taking these illicit drugs. I mean, there is the issue that under prohibition, there's no guarantee of what you're getting, and that's yeah. a big part of the harm, or the risk associated yeah. uh, with taking these drugs, yeah. is that... Uh, under prohibition, we leave the manufacturing and distribution to criminals, and uh, unfortunately, there's no, uh, you know, indicator of 
what you're buying, how to use it safely, and those sorts of things. In the same way you know, that you, you know might go to a, a chemist and get a prescription medicine, you always get a pamphlet mm. that says you know don't operate heavy machinery mm. um, and uh, anything else that you need to know about it. You're guaranteed that you're getting what's on the packet and you know what the dosage is but that's this is not the case with illicit drugs and so the fact that they are illicit and the, the process of prohibition actually creates a tremendous amount of harm by not regulating these things when a large chunk of society is using them and and most of the argument um, in the media fails to mention the fact that kids take these things and adults too because they're fun and they're often productive and you know we can refer back to this research study which is about to start at st vincent's hospital in melbourne whereby people are are treating uh, near-death anxiety with a psychoactive Mm. drug psilocybin Mm. Uh, and uh, i I think we need to talk more those those of the general public out there who are using illicit drugs and have benefited from using them uh, need to be talking more openly about the fact that they are actually useful. Mm. Uh, you know, they are they are healing. They provide amazing insights. They are in many cases healthier for you than alcohol and tobacco. And there's good research out there that uh, demonstrates mm. that. And these things are just not mentioned in public discourse because of the taboo because you know there's this general thinking that drugs are bad if you take drugs then you're bad you're a criminal blah 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 but uh, i think the momentum is gathering and it's time for people to speak out more freely yeah well of course in society as you said we have the legal drugs alcohol tobacco which is seriously damaging we have the opioid epidemic in the u.s and certainly one uh, gathering storm here that's another issue there with the legal substances that we are that we can take and secondly as you're speaking People, young people in particular, and people take these kind of substances, I guess, for one reason, and that is uh, to do with the, the the layer of consciousness that we talk talk about in Graves' work, layer six, where they're, they're seeking to connect more readily, That's because right. they do enable a certain degree of connection for the, lots of people, lots of the time. These kind of substances, yes, with things like MDMA, yeah. they they enhance that human to human connection, which is one of the key drivers of this new value mm-hmm. set at layer six. They enhance empathy, don't they? Yeah. I guess you could say compassion to some degree at yeah, times. Yeah, absolutely. They're sensory awareness has expanded mm. and, and also uh, it's expanding our multi-dimensional awareness um, you know which is creating a, a very useful and interesting state of consciousness mm. uh, as opposed to things like alcohol which tend to dumb us down mm. and uh, of course we're faced with a, a hierarchy I guess in government and, and organizations uh, mostly comprised of an older generation that perhaps haven't used these substances and, and uh, are very used to alcohol that's the drug they know and so there's this just straight out bias yeah. against anything that's not familiar to them uh, it reminds me of uh, an anecdote <clears throat> I do not know if it is true or not of uh, the 1980s when MDMA ecstasy came on uh, into sort of the public uh, the public marketplace if you will and uh, in uh, in the UK, where of course soccer, football is uh, is the sport of, of everybody, uh, and there was a lot of riots in uh, in the eighties in various stadiums. There was some deaths. I can't remember that big one that occurred sometime in the eighties. And uh, I was told years ago, you may know more about this too, that uh, the introduction of uh, ecstasy into the, into the scene in the UK uh, meant that a lot of uh, football fans would take ecstasy and go to the game, and suddenly 
all the angst disappeared. And people would even be yeah. seen celebrating and hugging each other's, uh, the, the opposite team's members, uh, opposite team's supporters when uh, the, when there was a goal kicked. It was an extraordinary transformation. Maybe just an anecdote, but you can imagine no, it happening. No, I, I've actually seen uh, a quote in the media here in Australia, and I think, if, if I remember correctly, it was Mick Palmer, who's a former commissioner of the Australian Federal Police, who, who came out and said that uh, you know most police would much rather be dealing with people on the street on a Saturday night who were smoking cannabis or taking MDMA because it doesn't make them violent like <coughs> alcohol yeah. does and uh, there's tremendous evidence to show that alcohol is uh, is a drug that tends to trigger violence and in fact mm. yeah, here we are in Byron Bay which I'm not sure what the current statistic is but at one point we're the third most yes uh, or the f- third worst place in New South Wales for alcohol fuel violence yeah. yeah talking about cannabis another very interesting report uh, in um, Forbes magazine of all places in Forbes magazine yes indeed researchers at the University of Bonn and the Hebrew University have discovered that low regular doses of tetrahydrocannabinol, that's THC, the active constituents, or one of the main active ingredients of cannabinoids, one of the cannabinoids found in marijuana, may help to keep our brains from slowing down as we get older. Published in the journal Nature and Medicine, the German study revealed that while younger mice suffered a performance drop under the influence of THC, Um, They couldn't play the guitar that well. The psychoactive (laughs) chemical gave older mice a considerable performance boost, even putting them on par with younger mice. So this is good for us old folk. Um, It's been seen that uh, this has been observed in humans. Younger animals excel at the tests when sober but tend to struggle significantly under the influence of THC. But mature... Uh, people and old mice, on the other hand, struggled with tasks as, cons- as consistent with their brain ages at first, but saw a huge increase in performance with THC infusions. Interesting. It's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to uh, find out more information about that. So if you're listening this morning and you know older people who smoke cannabis and you find that it's enhancing their brain performance, text us and let us know. Text us in. Drop us a text line 04373 I always say it two, two ways differently so I confuse you, but you know, you're smart and you've got to get it together. So that's in Forbes magazine. Very interesting. Um, previous research also at the University of Bonn um, suggested that the brain's many... Uh, the brain's main cannabis receptor and neural pathways are closely related to brain health in later life and seem to play a role in preventing brain degeneration when active. So that's the endocannabinoid system in our bodies, which uh, has all the receptors for the cannabinoids in THC and other other places where cannabinoids, cannabinoids arise. That's right. And, and if you don't know what that uh, prefix endo means, it means that we actually have receptors yeah. which are made to, uh, made to receive these with things. cannabinoids and we produce our own. Yeah. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate and spiral up. Tune to Bay FM 999. It's 958 here. And thanks for your text. We'll come back to some of those a little later on, uh, probably. We've been talking a lot this morning about uh, the new psychedelic revolution, in a sense, and the increasing uh, uh, focus on the medicinal and other uses of some of these substances as we move forward into this era that we're, we are now entering quite strongly. And 
seems a lot of things are happening in Melbourne. I just noticed uh, we were talking about the psilocybin research at St Vincent's Hospital. Uh, Steve has just been down there, uh, down south, not all the way down there uh, at the Illuminate conf- Conference, but you're, you're going to go down, actually. I'm also going to go down now in the middle of February to the launch of Mind Medicine Australia. Tell us a bit about this. Yeah, so in 2017, we had a number of breakthroughs uh, and I'm talking, when I say we, I'm talking about psychedelic research in science and medicine mm. and also Entheogenesis Australis, which is a community-based organisation in Melbourne that's been running conferences on psychoactive plants and substances for many, many years down there and, and really produce world-class events now. They had a wonderful event in late 2017. And that event, uh, which was uh, up the Yarra Valley, um, was quite critical in terms of moving forward our efforts to get something happening here in Australia. And we had a representative from uh, St. Vincent's Hospital there. We had Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, the American research organisation which has been leading the MDMA research, and a bunch of other wonderful researchers from around the world. Um, And uh, we had uh, also a couple of people approach us around that time, just before the EGA event, uh, offering some funding to help us get some research started here in Australia. And that's been you know, one of our ongoing issues is just trying to get financial support yeah. and also support from institutions, particularly here in Australia. Mm. And they were big obstacles for us for many, many years. Mm. But in 2017, uh, we really jumped both of those hurdles. So we had uh, one of our, one of my co-founders of PRISM, um, Dr. Stephen Bright, moved from Melbourne to Perth to take up a job at Edith Cowan University and was able to get some interest from Edith Cowan in supporting an MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study here in Australia, and that's an, an ongoing uh, project over there that we're hoping to to make further progress with this year. Mm. And also we had the approach from St Vincent's, uh, who had seen the publicity around the research happening in the USA with uh, psilocybin mm, and near-death fantastic. anxiety, and so they were interested in doing something in their palliative care unit. So um, in you know, all of a sudden we had some funding, we had some openings at institutions which allowed us to take some steps forward. And one of those funders who approached us uh, expressed an interest in trying to make further progress in a broader sense here in Australia, not just around research, but around uh, you know, potentially drug law reform and those sorts of things. Yeah. And as a consequence of that, uh, we began thinking about ways to, to further the cause uh, started discussing setting up some kind of an institute that might be able to lobby separately from PRISM as a research organisation because it's not always in the best interests of a, an organisation trying to get scientific studies happening to be politically lobbying as well yeah, because yeah, sometimes they can compromise, you know, yep. particularly with such a, a sensitive issue as psychedelics where there's this big social taboo and mm. people don't even want to talk about it sometimes. Anyway, the outcome of that was that uh, a new organisation is being created called Mind Medicine Australia, and mm. you can find them online at mindmedicineaustralia.org. Yep. And the president of PRISM, Dr. Martin Williams, is the uh, chief scientific officer of Mind and Medicine Australia, and also one of our other committee members from PRISM, uh, Melissa Warner, is the executive officer. And Mind Medicine Australia is a registered charity acting as the central node for the promotion of regulatory approved and research-backed psychedelic medicines to assist with the treatment of mental health in Australia. Mm. So they're really being created uh, as a a promotion group, a lobby lobby group uh, that will have the freedom to to do a whole bunch of things that PRISM, you know, is probably 
um, better off leaving to another organization so that we can simply focus on getting the research happening and doing the actual research. Yes. And uh, Mind Medicine Australia is going to be launched by Professor David Nutt. Yes, who is uh, the head of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London, no doubt, no, no less. And uh, the psychedelic research group under the leadership of Professor Nutt at Imperial College is one of the world's foremost psychedelic research laboratories. Yes. Pretty, so pretty amazing having him come out. They've been doing some wonderful stuff and, mm. and uh, particularly some pioneering poor, uh, work around MDMA and the use of magnetic resonance imaging to understand what's happening in the brain uh, with MDMA. And I think it was really their efforts that uh, came up with the information we were discussing earlier on the show about the default mode network and how that gets quietened down. Yeah by psychoactives. And David Nutt was um, infamous, actually, made infamous a, a couple of years back because at the time he was chair of the UK Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, advising mm. the UK government, and he came out in the media and That's right. stated that taking MDMA is, is statistically safer than horse riding if you look at the hospital admissions. <laughs> didn't go down very well with the crowd. didn't go down very well at I all. I can tell you at the palace. He was, palaces, sacked, uh, he was sacked, sacked from that advisory mm. role, uh, but in the process became world famous, of course, and uh, as <laughs> and a wonderful, the... wonderful pioneer in terms of psychedelic research. Fantastic. He, he was, a, I mean, he's had an incredible history. He's uh, been the president of the European Brain Council, the British Neuroscience Association, the British Association of uh, Psychopharmacology, and the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology, and was previously, as you said, the chair of the UK Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, saying from his experience, what should be going on and getting sacked for it? Yeah. There you go. There's the abyss. He ideology out, versus. He was out here a couple of science. years back uh, speaking at the um, APSAD conference, which is a, uh, a mm. conference that the psychology world has on. Uh, drugs and uh, yeah. harm reduction and that kind of stuff and uh, Martin Williams the president of Prism and, and myself had a chance to sit down and chat with David for about an hour and he's a really really lovely guy yeah, yeah. so just quickly you've, as I said you've been down at the Illuminate conference uh, down in Coffs Harbour over this last weekend uh, with a, a, a bit of a, a plethora or, or let's say a wide range of uh, approaches to I guess new thought, new new dimensions, new concepts about beingness. That's right. What can you summarise about that? You were were presenting there with uh, Dr. Stephen Booth, who's been on this show a couple of times as one of our guests. That's right. So it was the Illuminate Aspects of Consciousness Symposium. Mm. And it's organised by the folks who previously organised the Afterlife Explorers Conference and also the Close Encounters Conference. So Mick Palmer and Catherine Hand. And I was invited to go and speak about entheogens and the mystery traditions. So entheogens being psychoactive substances that are used specifically for creating a spiritual experience mm. and uh, the history of that practice in the mystery traditions. In other words, the non-religious spiritual traditions that have taken a structured approach to spiritual exploration and the expansion of human consciousness through yeah. that history. Uh, and that was wonderful. And uh, my, my good colleague uh, and friend Stephen Booth and I also presented a two-hour workshop on light body activation, which is something that we've spoken about on the show before, uh, which is really about how this big leap in consciousness, which is beginning to happen uh, for certain people around the world at the moment and is coming down the track for for many, many more people, involves a change to the body's subtle energy fields. Mm. So most people would be familiar with the chakra system and the uh, energy meridians as described in Indian and, and Chinese medicine. And uh, where Stephen Booth and I are working with some work that was documented by an American chap called uh, Dr. Mikio Sankey. Yes. 
who has a, a strong, he has two PhDs in fact, and a strong background in Chinese medicine and acupuncture, and he's put together a system based on acupuncture, which is an extension of the traditional uh, Chinese version, which is mapping changes in our body subtle energy field which come along with this increase in consciousness and in fact the the subtle energy geometry that uh, manifests as we go through this big shift in consciousness is actually helping anchor the consciousness in the body mm. and uh, we're talking about the theory of that and also uh, did a practical exercise during which we we had a, a bunch of people had some interesting altered state mm. and energetic experiences it's interesting to me too this uh, this articulation this growing awareness of articulation of experience of the light body has a lot of heritages of course in many spiritual traditions this notion of the light body yes doesn't it? yeah 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 i've been reading about these things for many years of course and i'd never come across anything really concrete i mean it always sounded very fluffy you know whenever i read yeah. about the light body and it, it implied that we were leaving our physical bodies and going to live somewhere else in a light body but uh in fact the work of mikio sankey is the first material i've come across which really provides a grounded map and explanation for what it means uh, and it, what it means is the manifestation of a, a complex sacred geometric pattern of subtle energies which is laid over the existing system so it doesn't replace the existing yeah. energetic system we have. But it, is this uh, the same thing as, uh, as the Merkaba, the Merkaba? Uh, yes, mm. it certainly is the same thing in that the uh, Merkaba that they talk about is part of our subtle energy field, the pattern in our subtle energy yeah. field, yeah. A geometric, like a crystal, a sort of uh, light crystal that, that surrounds and, and permeates the, the the physical and ultra-physical bodies, if you will. Certainly crystalline in terms of its shape mm. and structure, yes. Mm. Um, not Geometrical. Li- not literally crystal, but yeah. in subtle energy form. Yes. Yeah. Very beautiful. Um, yeah. So, yes, that, the Illuminate was an interesting event. Um, lots of uh, way, way out and uh, unusual fringe presentations, which is wonderful because it's these kinds of things that help us feel into what's coming down the track in the future. And it's, you know, it's those dreamers and imagineers who, mm. who often tap into uh, what's next for humanity. So uh, broad spectrum of stuff. It was uh, a lot of fun connected with some interesting people. You uh, you often delineate, and this is not a judgment, but delineate between those presentations and uh, and modalities, if you will, that are driven somewhat by or largely by fear of the future, fear of what's coming, fear, fear of what's happened before, yeah. and those which don't. Can you expand a little on that? Sure. Um, I guess the distinction comes around this transition point into second-tier consciousness. And yeah. If we look at the first six layers of consciousness, uh, from sort of hunter gatherer hunter gatherer consciousness through to this emergent network centric humanistic way of being human, which is just appearing and and maybe in the next decade or two will become the dominant global paradigm. All of those first six are really underpinned by a fear of of not surviving, and there's a strong survival focus. It's you know every everyone at different layers in different ways is asking the question: How the hell do I survive in this world? You know, yeah. what what do I need to do? How do I need to be? And it's only with the transition into second tier consciousness that fear drops away significantly. So it's no longer a key driver anymore. And so it's it's interesting to look at people who are trying to make sense of things that are happening in the world and things that are happening within themselves mm. and just to notice whether their perspective is being driven by fear or not. Uh, and of course, there, you know, there are a whole bunch of theories out there which are 
appear to be driven by fear, you know, around issues like uh, government conspiracies and alien abductions and those sorts of things. And it's interesting to to see different people talking about the same thing, but sometimes in the absence of fear, and they have a very very different perspective. Mm. You know, there was there was one particular presentation. Uh, over the last couple of days uh, by someone who'd had a, an alien abductee experience and um, he was uh, he made a very good presentation but he was talking about the experience of interacting with extraterrestrials that, that he had or perceived to have and uh, they're going through the process of having a massive heart-opening experience which um, he described as like an explosion of ecstasy in his body, uh, but nevertheless he presented it in very, very fearful terms, mm. as if it was a you know something that he would rather not have had, mm. um, so it, which is really interesting because you know you take someone else who'd had the same experience, they might talk about it in a particularly different way. Mm. But I, I guess you've also got to acknowledge the the bizarre uh, nature of of you know unexpectedly interacting with uh, something that seems to be from another planet. So. Um, I think most people would be afraid when faced with that. Perhaps. Well, it's hard to know. I mean, on that topic, uh, you may have folks have heard of and read a little bit about uh, the, the comet, in inverted commas, Oumuamua, which I do believe means the thing is Hawaiian for messenger uh, and has been called a spaceship. And for those who don't keep don't up with the space news, Oumuamua is the first object in history to pass through the solar system, our solar system, and be identified as definitely originating outside of it. The first interstellar guest came to us from the direction of Vega, the brightest star in the Lyra constellation, which is 26 light years from us. Now, the curious thing for me about this, uh, just the other week, and I've talked to Steve about this, watched the 1997 film starring Jodie Foster called Contact, and in that film, it was from the star Vega that the message from uh, Aliens came, and the film was predicated on that and uh, the journey uh, to that. I think a a film quite ahead of its time in some ways. But there's quite a lot of um, serious scientific uh, looking at this, isn't it, including from um, Harvard's astronomy department? That's right. So uh, this is a really interesting piece of news. Mm. The uh, chairman of Harvard University's astronomy department and author of one of the most controversial articles in the realm of science last year, a chap called Avi Loeb, has come out and uh, said that he thinks that this, what appeared to be a large rock sailing through our solar system, uh, actually seems to be some kind of technology rather than just a rock. And that's based on a study of the, the physics of its movement through the solar system. And the key thing was that it didn't behave like a comet. You know, normally when things come from outside the solar system and, and go flying through, there's some kind of uh, tail that uh, they emit as a result of their interaction with the sun. Yeah. Uh, and this thing didn't have that. And strangely, it, it entered the solar system in an unusual way, what they called an extreme hyperbolic orbit at a speed of 26.3 kilometers per second. Uh, relative to the motion of the sun. And as it drifted past the sun, it actually accelerated. And that, that I think that's the key thing. Is, yes. You know, if it was so just a, a rock or a comet flying through, it, it ought not have done that. So you're saying basically it was using the sun's gravitational pull to, to sling it back out to space again? Yeah. Perhaps. So uh, mm. so 
it, it uh, they're saying here that the sun's gravity accelerated the object to a velocity of mm. 87.8 kilometers per second uh, compared to 26.3 kilometers per second as it entered into the uh, solar system. And so the, the implication is that it is some kind of technology that is designed to act as what they call a solar sail, in other words, to use the, the sun's energy to propel it. Mm. And um, and what a, an amazing thing to have uh, a man of this stature uh, from the um, Harvard University's uh, astronomy department come out and say that he thinks it's actually some kind of alien technology. That's that's pretty extraordinary. Absolutely. I mean, this guy, uh, Professor Loeb, in 2012 was named by Time magazine as one of the 25 most influential people in the field of space. So he's not just some sort of out of nowhere kind of guy. And this, you've probably seen a photograph of this. It's a rather unusual object. It's a long cigar-shaped object. Probably if it had been stood up in Byron Bay, it would be called phallic. Uh, <laughs> uh, and perhaps it would be a better thing than the, uh, the, the it, it birds out It could look better, actually, if you stood it on its end, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it would look better. But uh, it's a, certainly an interesting object. So there you go. And uh, fascinating to me, having just watched the movie Contact. And if you haven't seen it, I suggest you have a, have a look at it. It's a very interesting movie, Contact. And as you just alluded to, he's, mm. uh, the uh, the object came to us from the direction of Vader. That's right. The brightest star in the Lyra constellation. And in fact, uh, it reminds me also of the movie K-Pax. Oh, yeah, K-Pax, uh, yeah, with, with that, other, with, that uh, guy who shouldn't, who's in trouble now. Spacey, Mr. Spacey. been in a bit of strife. Um, Kevin spaced who, out. Who played a... In space. A, uh, an alien yeah, uh, visiting K-Pax. Earth who said he was from the Lyra constellation. Yeah. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah, mm. Very interesting. Now, at the same time this week, you might have seen that uh, another report of repeated radio signals coming from a galaxy 1.5 billion light years away. They've repeatedly spotted these blasts of radio signals coming from deep space, and this is quite a break uh, breakthrough. A fast radio bursts have been speculated to be the result of everything from exploding stars to transmissions from aliens but they've remained entirely mysterious. And these flashes only last for a millisecond, but they're flung out with the same amount of energy the sun takes 12 months to produce. Quite extraordinary. So, of course, these these regular bursts, and they're very brief, coming from out there in space, mm, could be anything. But again, this notion of, well, we, we simply do not know everything. We don't know what's going on, and we don't know the, the, the source of such things. It's uh, exciting. It is exciting, and it's a very interesting topic. Uh, you know, a lot of people sort of take the rational approach and say it's ridiculous to think that uh, you know these are things that are the result of alien civilizations. But if you look mm. at the mathematics of it, the probability, given the number of stars out there in our universe, at least the ones that we can see, there's probably a whole bunch that we can't even see. Yeah. Um, the probability of there not being another form of life out there is astronomical. No pun intended. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's pretty amazing. And and again, uh, I think this is, uh, and I, I, I mentioned to you a couple of times in the movie Contact I just referred to before, there's a great scene where Jodie Foster's um, astrophysicist character comes back after it's been acknowledged worldwide that uh, there's been an alien contact and they're going to build this this uh, this device, this, this spaceship or whatever it is, I don't know what it's for, and she comes back to the facility and she's, she drives through this crowd of, of crazy people. Uh, and it's, it's a great scene because it shows this inability of a large percentage of the population still at this time in human history 
to actually consider and receive uh, something like this, something that alien. So you see all these uh, religious fanatics sort of going, it's hell and, you know, this is this is an evil thing and you see all these people dressed up in in, uh, in alien space sort of uh, outfits welcoming the visitors from outer space and you see all sorts of other crazies and, and, and people in fear, uh, you know, sort of protesting or making uh, remonstrations to... to to you know to be saved and all of that and immediately you see yeah, we're just not ready for this sort of contact yet or are we i mean you know we, we're starting to see these moments scientifically we're starting to see these kind of umuamua arrive in our solar system some things we can't explain by our normal way of taking things and yet most people are not seemingly ready for this kind of contact i would i would say and again it comes back to that fear you know the fear of the other i mean goodness me we're still afraid of other people on the planet, you know, who got different coloured skin or come from different countries, let alone uh, beings from another world. Indeed. So, we as a as a species, we need to move beyond that fear a little bit more before we get many visitors. I think, yeah. at least open visitors. Anyway, open visitors, you, yes. You know, show themselves. Because I'm not too that, sure about you anyway. For a start, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where you're from. I'm visiting. What do you I'm mean? I'm not sure where I'm from, to be honest with you. For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land. Your grokking future sense here on Bay FM. Hey, I'm Bob Hawke. I'm on Bay FM 99.9. Yes. Almost boiling. Uh, Good on you. Good on you, Bob. That is actually Bob Hawke. Can you believe it? He's still alive, isn't he? Is he alive? I'm pretty sure he God, is. God damn. Well, I'm showing my age here. You're on Bay FM. You are with Future Sense here with Steve and Nick through to 11 o'clock. Pregnancy, birth, and beyond coming up then. We had a quick report from a listener oh, yes. uh, during the last break yeah. who was, uh, as I was hearing that uh, it's inevitable there must be life out there, my ro- microphone crackled apparently, fast radio burst, another planet. Fantastic. They, they are listening to you, Steve. They're they listening are. to us, they're watching us, and uh, they will make contact and a bit I'm later on. to them as well. <laughs> I hope so. A couple of texts came in, a few texts. Uh, just address a couple of these. They're not totally on topic, but they'll lead us into something a little bit here. Um, hi guys, I've just read Charles Eisenstein's Climate, the new story, and he talks of us moving into the from the myth of separation to that of interbeing. I kind of like that word, interbeing. Not bad. I so want to believe humanity is moving forward, says this writer, but with the pressures of environmental collapse so imminent, a fascist in Brazil cutting the Amazon down, that's certainly troubling. Both parties uh, here in this country are num- enamored by fossil fuels still, and Trump doing his thing over there. It's hard to see us moving fast enough to avoid annihilation. Um, and uh, that's for, actually from Jenny Cargill-Strong, who runs the stories in the, in the pub, and she says on February the 10th, they've got a, a theme called um, What Do You Stand For? So you might be interested in that February the 10th at the Mullum Club. And she follows it up with um, another piece that says, Redemocracy, Science and Decision-Making. I participated in redesigning democracy workshops at Woodford, and learned about the way citizens' assemblies can be used extensively with well-facilitated deliberative democracy to completely sidestep personality politics where politicians get wooed by donors. New democracy worth checking out. Thanks for that, Jen. And certainly new forms of democracy do need to come online. And on that note, there's an interesting report that that we've come across from uh, uh, called the Economist's Intelligence Unit's Index of democracy. Actually, Nick, I, I must jump in there because oh, I okay. noticed the the one that uh, we have been looking at is from two thousand and seven. Uh, so that's an old version, but there is a, a media article that we have 
which is talking about the most recent report. Yes, that's from that's from a few days ago, 2019. Yeah. Yep. Where um, and it's entitled "The United States Doesn't Even Make the Top 20 on Global Democracy Index." So I guess with re- reference to the text that just came in from Jenny, thanks Jenny, and the future of democracy, you know, we we're still under the spell, you could say, of American-style democracy that uh, most first-world countries subscribe to in one form or the other, which emanated, of course, from Britain and other European countries too. But it, that style it did, but it's been run off the rails run off during the, rails. the scientific industrial era, era by something which we call corporate capture. Oh. Uh, whereby the the democratic system has shifted to rely so much on corporate donations that the corporations have undue influence over the decision making process mm. and uh, and consequently it's it's as that has happened politics has been less about serving the people and looking after the country and more about serving particular interests yeah it's, it's fascinating to see that the the US doesn't even rate in the top 20 in this era and you know for some people who are looking at the Trump era who disagree with Trump's politics clearly that's that's not unusual Americans mostly don't vote they're not particularly engaged it would seem in the d- democratic process and that's witnessed by the fact that Australia is relatively high up on this uh, particular scale that the countries at the top of the scale you can imagine are uh, some of the Scandinavian countries uh, and the like and um, but this this notion that we are um, a full democracy sort of certainly eludes us and, and I would suggest we're probably in this country we're slipping away. The, the good thing about this country is we're supposed to all vote which is good. We, we're supposed to find ways to be engaged although I don't think we're educated very much on, on the process itself. Young enough we're not educated on our constitution. Do we have one in fact? If we don't have a bill of rights of course. So there's arguably you know we certainly our treatment of others in this era yeah, would uh, would put a very big question mark about how democratic we truly are. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things that need to change about our democratic systems, one of them being the fact that people are generally elected on the basis of belonging to a particular party or just being popular or maybe just having a good-looking photo. Yeah, or belong to their, a particular elite. Yeah, on their, on their um, poster. But uh, we need to move to a point where we're actually electing people who... Or on the basis of their qualifications and experience for, for serving a government to start with. And also we need some kinds of mechanisms to, that allow the general public to have some influence in the decision-making process on, yeah. in the short term. I mean, we get to, to uh, have some input uh, when the elections come around, which is once every four years or so. But in between, if there's a particularly strong issue, the only possibility that we have of influencing that is, is influencing the media and, uh, you know, having... Um, lobbying mm. uh, with advertisements and the sort in the media to try and shift uh, public support, which hopefully then would shift the politicians, but it's a very clumsy system. And so I can see in the future is moving to, to some kind of a process where we can have more public input to short-term yes. decision-making. Well, of course, even parliaments in our countries are now not, uh, not the decision-makers often. For example, in the United States, the escalation of the trade war with China, diplomatic engagement with North Korea, extensive deregulation of the energy, mining and automotive industries have not required congressional approval. In other words, the President Trump can simply uh, stick his signature to and stamp of approval on things and that's that. Yeah, that's right. Of course, there was that study by Princeton University, which uh, I I found a BBC article talking about it, which was published in 2014, and they're saying it was a recent study, so it must have come out about the same year, where they... Princeton University had a look at the U.S. democratic system and basically decided that it's no longer a democracy, 
and then it was basically an oligarchy. Uh, the, the first line of this article says the US is dominated by a rich and powerful elite. Mm. I think that's becoming more and more obvious. One of the uh, positives in this particular democracy index of uh, the 60 indicators that make up the democracy index is that women's political participation has improved more than any other single indicator in the model. Formal and informal barriers to women's political participation, including discriminatory laws and socioeconomic obstacles, are gradually being knocked down. So that's a positive, that's for it sure. It is a positive, and there was, that was certainly the case with the recent US elections, where there was a record number yeah. of, of women elected, right. which is wonderful. And it also reflects this value shift that we're seeing mm. as we move beyond the scientific industrial era towards this humanistic network-centric era. These layers of consciousness have particular themes and as a very general rule the individually oriented layers like the scientific industrial layer for example is uh, masculine in its flavor whereas the communal layers which which are each alternate layer is is either individual or communal mm-hmm. um, have a feminine theme and so we're shifting back towards community now back towards feminine influence and we would expect to see this kind of thing and it's wonderful to be seeing it yes yeah, indeed it's a, it's a sign of progress in terms of new democracy and just refer- referencing back to uh, jen cargill strong's uh, comment about workshops in woodford and of course there's been many of these these participatory communal community democracy movements going on and uh, ideas around electronic uh, voting such as the flux in australia flux which is still in existence and others uh, looking at ways for more participatory democracy how do you see the next the future with terms of uh, how we how we elect our representatives or will there not be representatives in the same way anymore how do you see that coming forward it depends how far into the future you yes, want to go i mean to look at what's emerging right now mm. you know we're seeing blockchain based technology that allows input and uh that one that you just mentioned mm. uh, you know is, is an example of that whereby um, people can use technology to to vote on issues and those sorts of things and have it recorded in a secure way that, that can't be tampered with through blockchain type technology. And I guess you know, we're very fortunate here in Australia. Sometimes it's it's easy to sort of uh, overlook the fact that we're we're really still a fairly solid democracy compared yeah. to some other countries like like the US, for example. And uh, we have organisations like GetUp, which is a very grassroots organisation that does, you know, it does exist just to represent the grassroots opinion, and uh, you know, uses uh, crowd power to uh, to fund lobbying advertisements and those sorts of things. And it's, I think, it's very, very healthy that we've got those mechanisms. Yeah. In terms of you know, we talk, we talk a lot on this show about uh, distributed and decentralised systems emerging on the planet and you mentioned blockchain there before and and other systems that are emerging and it, it is the kind of in a sense the, the buzz uh, concept uh, in the world in the in the leading edge of science and technology and the like how does this apply do you think and this is where distributive or um, democracy or uh, citizens democracy is a, i guess an aspect of that but how do you see that coming forward into politics the, the decentralization of uh, of democracy if you will well some of the big themes that we're seeing with the emergence of this new set of values this new layer of consciousness are the relocalization of a whole bunch of things and technology is going to feed into that with uh, things like 3d printing for example which will mean that we can go back to local manufacturing very very easily and actually a lot more cheaply than the way we manufacture things at the moment for example something might be made in china and then shipped all the way to 
the supermarket or the store here in Australia where you buy it, whereas in the future those sorts of things can simply be ordered and printed locally using 3D printing. Mm. So if you extend that general theme of relocalization and the importance of trusted local suppliers and local networks, I can see the responsibility for many government functions shifting back to local areas in the same way. Mm. Uh, where at the moment government has been centralised and and the obvious issue with that is that everyone's complaining that these people in Canberra or these people in Sydney or wherever their, their local government uh, is headquartered don't understand what's happening here on the ground, right? Uh, and so that's an issue I think that is going to shift and we'll see mm. much more local influence and much more local responsibility than we have. Mm, indeed. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. Yeah, since you just love radio, we love radio. You can listen to us actually at any time. You don't have to be tuned in right now because you're probably really not. Or maybe you listen to it uh, six months from now on uh, our podcast, which you can go to future, future Sense, at Future Sense, Future Sense, uh, future sense on uh, iTunes or on Spotify. Both are free, of course. And uh, you can also tweet to us uh, at Future Sense Show. And we have a website, futuresense.it. You can check out IT, that is futuresense.it. You can check out all the information and we will also post many of the articles that we refer to. Uh, we're going to just tackle a bit of a, a, a tough topic lightly uh, at the end here. Jellyfish. Jellyfish. Jellyfish and but particularly the relationship if there is one between genes and complexity. That's um, not Nick genes we're talking about but <laughs> um, genes is thank, thank G-E-N-E-S. Uh, now you'd be pretty familiar with things like organisations like 23andMe um, gene testing has become a bit of a trend these days and gene testing even at birth for educational intervention, embryo selection for desired traits, identifying which classes or races are fitter than others and clever marketising now sees millions of people scampering to learn their genetic horoscopes in DNA testing kits and uh, you know there's a lot of uh, articles and even books about determining your child's success and all of these sort of things but the problem is that many of these headlines are not discussing real genes at all but a crude statistical model of them involving dozens of unlikely assumptions here's science going a little bit ideological again perhaps now slowly but surely that whole conceptual model of the gene is being challenged and as uh, Steve mentioned jellyfish are a, a little bit a part of this because there is this sort of overarching theme in the story of evolution, at least over the last half billion years, so of rising complexity. And uh, that complexity actually somehow is based on in our genes and the sort of expansion or the, or the uh, evolution of genes. But this is now being contested. And uh, in terms of the jellyfish, there's a recent study appearing in Nature, Ecology and Evolution showing it not to be the case, at least for jellyfish, humble organisms that evolved at a crucial juncture in animal history. They did not need more genes or even notably different ones to power their giant leap in complexity. This new study adds to a, gro- a growing body of work that casts doubt on finding straightforward genomic signatures of the evolution of complexity. Hmm, complex uh, equation this, interesting indeed. It is interesting and basically the discovery uh, is around looking at genes and uh, the, the older sort of idea that the, the influence that our genes have on us and, and how we evolve and how we, how we behave is related to, uh, directly related to their encoding of proteins mm-hmm. uh, and direct action. But in fact, the new research is showing, is showing that uh, 
there is a, a complex network of operation uh, within our DNA where certain genes are turned on and off uh, in sequences and it's the combination of, of the switching um, which creates complexity rather than simply the number of genes that, yes. we, that we have there. And, and again, you know, it links back to this emerging consciousness which is network centric. And I just find it so fascinating how all of this new science that, that's coming out is really mm. about the emergence of network-based thinking, and it's, which is really mm. systems thinking. You know, we're, we're starting to look at systems and how the different parts of a system interact in different ways rather than in a more sort of linear and superficial mm. manner as we have in the past. Yeah, and as I've said, I think, on this show before, and I've said it too, this, in my view, a sort of addiction to direct linear causality is uh, is something that's passing away because in a complex system, in a in network system, it's not that one thing causes one other thing in that linear way it's at not, all. Yeah, no. When everything's connected in a network sense, you know, it's it's not linear anymore. It's uh, it's quite complex. Yeah, quite complex. Uh, interesting too that these these DNA components, which can vary from person to person, they're called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. Uh, the genetic search for our human definition boiled down in past research to looking for statistical associations between such variations and differences in IQ, education, disease, or whatever. And again, that's sort of very direct, uh, you know, causative thing. If this, then that. And uh, But the problem is, for years, disappointment has followed because only a few extremely weak associations between SNPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms, and observable human characteristics could be found. So it's sort of disappearing out of science anyway because it doesn't work. That's right, you know, and we've probably all heard people talk about a particular gene being associated with a, a yeah. potential of having a disease, but yes. not everybody who has the gene gets the disease. It depends on the activation process. Mm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting one. And um, yeah, so one of these articles says there is no correlation between the complexity of living things and the number of genes they have. This is also interesting because there's also this idea that we have an extra gene that's missing, isn't there? Or an extra DNA uh, molecule, I think. There's an extra thing on the strand. Is that? I know we, we weren't going to talk about this directly, but it just popped into my mind just then. Yeah. Um, sort of secret, sort of alien uh, component that's been activated. You've, you've caught me off you've guard too because I wasn't prepared to talk about this either. But uh, yeah, it's, You know what uh, I'm talking about, though. I, I've got, I'm going to have to fish it out of my memory now. It's to do with, uh, is it the number of chromosomes it's uh, the chromosomes there's 20 there's 23 and there's supposed to be 24 well it's we all of our supposed predecessors in the yeah. evolutionary tree have 24 yes. and and we have 23 mm. and uh one of those 23 appears to be two that have been fused together that's the tricky thing oh, yeah. okay. right? so it looks it looks like there's been some kind of strange genetic uh, intervention there which some people explain as extraterrestrial influence which kind of fits with the the out there theme of today's show, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed. And there's a lot of out there things going on at the moment. What else can we talk about? We've got a few more minutes left. I mean, anything else about the genes? And complete? We just wanted to bring that because, of course, it's it's science and it's, it's tricky science and we, we certainly don't claim to be scientists or to be cr totally across it. But in this show, we'd like to bring you these things if you haven't heard them to do your further investigation because I noticed reading the stuff about DNA and complexity in genes, how I've also, to some degree, adopted the language of, oh, it's in my DNA, or like maybe I can change my DNA if I do this. It's become and I can common, hasn't it? become yeah. a very common part of our of our sort of more um, you know more open um, discourses between those of us who are interested in consciousness and interested in evolution and so forth. And yet it may be based on, on a bunch of falsehoods again. Yeah. And again, we see science 
somehow uh, taking hold of something, uh, running with it for a period of time, in, in this case for, for many years, one form or the other, and actually may not be true. And we've got a number of examples of these. That's right. Course. It's also a wonderful example as well of, as, as of how science changes, how it evolves. You know, as we discover more stuff and we look more deeply and we look at things in different ways, and particularly when we go through these shifts in consciousness as we're experiencing right at the moment, moving from what Claire Graves called a multiplistic way of viewing things in the scientific mm. industrial paradigm, mm. which really was looking at things from a central standpoint, but looking at multiple options and experimenting and testing with different options. And that was really the basis of you know, what we call mainstream science now. Mm, yes. And we're shifting into a, a network-centric, humanistic, relativistic form of being human, which is giving us the capacity to really understand and be able to take different perspectives from within a, a network type scenario. So uh, we sometimes we call it the wisdom of the moccasins where you can really get a sense of what it's like to stand in someone else's shoes and look at something from a completely different perspective. Whereas in the scientific industrial paradigm, we were always looking from the same perspective, but looking out at multiple options and possible courses of action but now we we have this uh, conceptual capacity to reposition ourselves and look back from different angles and so you know we're exploring the world and we're uh, um, redesigning our values reassessing our values with this capacity to really put ourselves in the shoes of another person or sometimes even in the shoes of an animal you know or yeah. nature or self and imagine what it must like be like to to be experiencing mm. certain things mm. yeah yeah it, uh, it occurs to me as you're speaking there that uh, you know, faced with the many challenges that we now have on this planet and, and for the first time in our history in this, in this era, able to see those challenges on a global level and the obvious ones are there. You know, we have uh, climate change of one sort or the other going on on the planet. We have uh, uh, big issues around the uh, social issues such as uh, the movement of people and refugees and uh, the, the nature of uh, of borders is a good one, I think. And what are borders? All of these all of these issues um, uh, are pushing us back into into this place. For many people back into this place of fear to some degree or other. It's very easy to be overwhelmed. It's very easy to be confused by the the, we the weight of the depth of the the issues that we face, and yet somehow. Um, I'd encourage, this is personal here, I'd encourage, I think we, I could even speak for we, to see th this exciting uh, element coming forward in, in our future. And yes, the challenges, that's not to ignore any of the challenges, they're significant, they are deadly. We may we may lose ourselves on this planet, that is a possibility. And yet somehow or other, the, the, all these things we, we seek to talk about on this show are showing us uh, the potential for an evolutionary change, a, a leap beyond and a solving of problems and challenges that we have that uh, that we may not be aware of now as einstein said very well as well often quoted you we cannot solve the problems with the same thinking that created those problems full stop yeah i agree nick and not just the potential though you know the fact is that this shift is already underway and we have uh, research-based evidence to show that human thinking is changing you know our, our consciousness is shifting to operate in more complex ways which is taking us into this network-centric yeah. way of being. And it's interesting to look at how the technology that was developed during and as a result yeah. of the modern scientific industrial era connected us together. Yeah. And it was that connected connective technology mm -hmm. which really... Uh, you know, provided the fuel to start us thinking about being 
immersed in a network because mm. we literally were you know immersed in an electronic networks courtesy of the internet yeah. and that has shifted our thinking and it's it's helped drive the emergence of this capacity of uh, th that, that we have that allows us to put ourselves in another place in the network and imagine what it must be like and we can do that because we we can literally reach out to people in other places around the world and we can listen to their experiences and, and get a direct sense of their perspective so uh, um, it's that that is the the engine of evolution is the extra complexity that we create in whatever paradigm we're living in which ultimately uh, drives the the changes in the plasticity of our consciousness that that bring us to more complex ways of comprehending and we have to do that because the challenges and problems that emerge out of the more complex life conditions mean that by their nature they're more we, complex exactly and as you said before we can't solve them with the old thinking that mm. produced them we have to start thinking in new ways and that's not a rational choice it's actually a, an evolutionary dynamic mm. yeah and it's great and it's ironic that this connected world that we now live in has given us the opportunity to see the challenges more clearly, to see that they're global challenges, to experience them, to talk about them to people on the other side of the world, so to speak. That's so, right. You know, with the benefit of Claire Graves, sorry to jump in, but with the benefit of Claire Graves' work also, you know, we, we know that the fear that we're seeing arise at the moment is a normal part of how human consciousness is changing because Claire Graves mapped that. He said that as we move into this relativistic network-centric era, uh, we will try and solve our complex problems by moving resources around uh, because our conceptual framework now has shifted to a network or systems type framework, but it's still flat. So we're still thinking of reality, the world, uh, as like a chessboard where we're moving pieces around and we have to shift pieces around within the networks in order to try and solve these complex it's problems. It's like the trade war that Trump has, uh, has uh, created with China. It's a very, very narrow-minded, very just moving the, moving the same piece around. One-dimensional, yeah. One-dimensional, yeah. Yeah, and Graves' work shows us that. Uh, you know, it even gives us information about the future in that it says mm. that the further we progress into this way of trying to solve our problems by rearranging things within networks, uh, it's actually going to create more tension. And we know that this era that we're moving into, the, the sixth layer of consciousness, is going to be most likely the shortest lived era so far because each era has been shorter than yeah. the previous one. Uh, and part of the, the dynamic is that the chaos that's going to be created from this new attempt to try and take a network's network-based systems approach to fixing problems is actually going to create more tension, which is going to drive the big leap in consciousness mm. into second-tier, multi-dimensional, mm. uh, integrative kind of thinking, which, by all indications, will allow us to solve some of the most difficult problems and challenges that we're facing globally mm. right now, which gives me um, you know, great hope that we're not actually heading to hell in a handbasket. And yeah. uh, you know, some, a lot of this fear-driven... Uh, imagination of what the future will be like I think is is uh, it's normal and part of human nature and it's to be expected but it's uh, only a partial truth it, it's generally not uh, taking into account the fact that things are changing and we are changing yeah indeed as the old I guess it's a new age adage has said fear f-e-a-r is false evidence appearing real and there's certainly some truth to that too uh, and I, I also say, as you're speaking to, you know, to encourage you folks and not to tell you what to do, because I don't know. I mean, we're all different, and I certainly have got my own approach to this. But to be able to, I guess, identify those places where you feel 
a little out of the normal uh, uh, expression of yourself where you feel able to deal with paradox a bit more because the world is full of paradox where you feel a little bit more excited by the the sort of multidimensional by the by the extraordinary where you feel encouraged by your own and others creativity when you get uh, uh, inspired by intuition where you get inspired by synchronicity when you see and value synchronicity beyond coincidence and the like i think all of these are are moments in a in a, a person's experience of life now which is uh, give, offering you an opportunity to to expand and rather than shut these things down and move back to, oh, it's only that, oh, it's not that, I didn't see that, I don't believe in that, I don't want to know that, rather take it on and go, like, well, maybe this, maybe I can accept this too, maybe I can have a look at this and uh, be open to receiving uh, different ideas about the way things work. And I think that's the most important thing at this time in history is just having an open mind, being open to exploration and open to the possibility that there's more to know rather than thinking that you know it all. Beautiful. Let's leave it there. That's uh, Steve McDonald and myself, Nick Jeans. This is Future Sense. As we've said, uh, tune in to us on uh, our podcast, either on iTunes or on Spotify, or you can also listen to the whole show with uh, music on the BayFM website. But if you want the information, you can go to those uh, those places for the edited versions, which arrive fairly soon afterwards in a few days' time. You can check us out. And also our website, futuresense.it. And our tweet, our Twitter account, Future Sense Show, at Future Sense Show. You can uh, tweet it to us. And uh, thank you for listening. We see you next week. Thanks, Bye-bye. mate. Thank you. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia, at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.